Hi, Angelie. Hey, Andrew. Just to let you know, I'm live from a closet that I emptied out, and it is now a sound studio. <laughs> That's right. I, yeah, right. You, you were uh, you were telling me before that you have various pets in your apartment, right? That you're and you're trying to block the noise out. Is that right? Yeah, two cats, a bird named El Pajaraco, and there is a daycare downstairs. So fun times. Okay. Uh, well, I'm Andrew Simon, and this is Temperature Check, a podcast from Grist. Temperature Check is a weekly show about climate, race, and culture. And today, uh, hanging out with me is Angelie Mercado. She's Grist's Environmental Justice Fellow. Well, Angelie, today on the show, we have Eduardo Jordan. Have you heard of him? No, but I love his name. Well, he, he's great. Uh, he's a James Beard Award-winning chef who's based here in Seattle, where I'm based, and where Chris is headquartered. And it's a good one. It's a good conversation. But first, uh, since it has been quite the week, uh, how have you been feeling this past week? Uh, are you sleeping any better now? No, because it's still 2020. So Biden or no Biden, I will still be eating a lot of melatonin gummies to get to bed. I feel like that's the second week in a row we've heard about melatonin gummies. So that sounds like it's a thing for 2020. Oh, they're magical even before 2020. But now that it is 2020, I cannot recommend them enough. Angelie, we're now looking at a Biden administration come January. And you just recently wrote a story about this. And I just wanted to ask you, you know, how are environmental justice leaders approaching the new administration and what are they hoping to get out of it? We don't know what's going to happen and we don't know how long it's going to take to fix some of the issues that have happened in the last four years. And we have yeah. to consider things like trust. There's going to be a lot of trust issues going forward and regaining that trust takes time. And there are also scientists and researchers who have left and have gone to uh, private companies. And so we do need researchers. We need scientists. And after the Trump administration, it's going to be a, a little bit harder to get people to stay or to get people to consider joining these agencies. Yeah. And I imagine um, just the work of covering environmental justice is going to change, too, for you. Uh, one question that came up for me personally when I learned about the Biden win, it made me wonder about how colonies of the U.S. will be treated going forward. Yeah, yeah. One big event that I think a lot of us report on and know about is Huracan Maria in 2017. A lot of my dad's side of the family lives there in Puerto Rico, and we didn't know where anyone was for over a week. Mm. They were knocked off the grid. A lot of people also lost running water. So basic necessities gone <laughs> after yeah, that. Yeah. And there was no way for us to reach them and help them. And that was really scary. The Trump administration approved funding, but that was this year mm. in 2020. And agencies and organizations on the island had been asking for better funding for years since the hurricane. So my hope is that a Biden-Harris administration would not just give funding when it's needed or consider giving funding earlier, but also baking community resilience into their policies and try to make sure that fragile communities or very vulnerable communities like Puerto Rico, coastal communities, frontline communities all over the country have a way to prepare themselves before a storm and not just be reactionary. Well, Angelie, we talk music on the show as well. And you recently wrote a story for Gris about Bad Bunny, the rapper and singer and reggaeton artist. And the story was about a recent video of his and some inferences to climate. Yeah, his uh, music video for the song Una Vez, it's from his album, Yo lo que me da la gana. He dropped the music video when he had a COVID safe concert here in New York. Right. And it, it created so many TikTok memes and they were amazing. <laughs> 
And it was very clear to me that they were climate and COVID themes in his video because you see like this lonely astronaut just kind of wandering this empty landscape. There's just random animals and the landscape's really beautiful and very just pristine. And it's like, oh, would that, is that what the world will look like without people polluting it? But it ends with the astronaut on top of the ruins of a building. And then they bury this uh, Polaroid photo in the rubble. And I was like, well, is it like a post-COVID climate change world? Dystopian, or only this? right? Yeah, yeah, but like in a very serenely beautiful way. And the lyrics are bad bunny <laughs> lyrics. I'm not going to translate them. But there's a lot of earnest feeling in the song, despite yeah. how raunchy the lyrics are. And I think that just made the loneliness of a post-COVID, post-climate world a bit more obvious to me when I watched the video. And that's why I really wanted to write about it. Yeah, and it really speaks to mainstream artists, just as you articulated, right, taking on these multiple crises that are happening. And someone who has global appeal like Bad Bunny for him to take it on in a song that's catchy and take it on this artful way. I mean, that that sort of says something to our time, right? Yeah, and I think he is a person to do it because he's from Puerto Rico. Yeah, I think it's amazing to me that an island that is so small has dealt with a lot because of climate change and a history of bad policy and colonialism. Yeah, and that's powerful to hear, Angeli. And again, on Temperature Check, we like to thread the needle between climate and culture. So it's uh, it's just so great that you wrote that story and we were able to chat about it. Okay, well, for today's interview, we're going to get into Southern cooking. We're talking to the restaurateur Eduardo Jordan, who grew up in Florida and now owns restaurants in the Seattle area. And we're going to talk to him about his approach to food and how he's run his business in almost impossible times. Uh, But before we get to that, Angelie, tell me about your Thanksgiving. What's the dish you have to have this year? One dish that I have to have for Thanksgiving, but also most holidays, tends to be pastelón or pasteles. Please tell me what goes into making pastelón. It's the same concept as like a lasagna, but instead of noodles, you're going to have platano maduro, the yellow one, the yellow plantain. Yeah. And you can either slice it and then layer it with meat, cheese, but I like to parboil them and mash them and then layer it with less meat. And I also don't use beef. Usually people use beef, but I just use some chicken, some vegetables, and then a little bit of cheese. And I layer it until it's all filled in the dish and then you bake. And it's very comforting. It's also very heavy food. No one judges you while you're eating it. You might get roasted by your aunts after. They'll be like, oh, you thick this year? (laughs) Yeah, they'll be like, oh, you gained five pounds. But, you know, when you're eating pastelón, you don't care anymore. You're just happy. That's right. That's right. It sounds delicious. One of the dishes I'll be looking forward to, it's going to sound really lame, Angelie, but it's just a nice bitter green salad, something that's light, crunchy, offsets the, the heavier food that's often on the Thanksgiving table. Is that just really lame on my part? No, because some salads pop off really well. Cool. Thank you for the endorsement. I'm feeling better about my <laughs> lame dish that I just mentioned. Well, all right, Angeli, hang tight with us while we get into this conversation with Chef Eduardo Jordan. This is Temperature Check from Grist. Hi, I'm Mirka, the Social Media Engagement Fellow at Grist.org. Temperature Check is a new show about climate, race, and culture produced by Grist and made possible by listeners like you. Founded in 1999, Grist remains committed to changing the national narrative around climate. And as a nonprofit, none of our work is possible without the steady and loyal support from people like you. At a time when our global community demands action to address the climate crisis, our work at Grist has never been more important. Every day we work tirelessly to bring you the climate news that matters most. And for us to engage our audience of millions of people, we need you. 
So thank you for joining today's episode and please consider making a donation to Grist today. Donate now and your gift will be matched dollar for dollar. Thanks for tuning in. On today's episode, we're speaking with Eduardo Jordan. He's a James Beard award-winning chef. Uh, he owns a couple Seattle restaurants, including June Baby and Solare, along with the Lucinda Grain Bar, a bar and cafe. And he's here to speak with us about food sourcing with an eye toward history, adapting to the pandemic, and about representation in the culinary industry. So, Eduardo, thanks so much for dropping by. Andrew, thanks for having me. And, you know, in full disclosure, I have to tell the listening audience in candor, my wife works with you as a consultant. Yeah, she is an amazing human being, and I'm grateful to have her part of my team and working with me. And a good friend. <laughs> yes, and she is. She's all those things. But I have to say that that isn't why you're here. In fact, when I asked her about how to reach you, she was like, well, you better speak to his people. So there's no nepotism here. <laughs> <laughs> so let's so let's dive in. You know, I, I wanted to start with a question. How are you just doing as a restaurateur in this year that is 2020? I am probably doing like most people when we're just surviving. Um, it's been a, you know, a very interesting year, to say the least. Um, we started off January looking strong. Going into February, the first of like, um, what was it, Valentine's Day. And, you know, we had like some of the best Valentine's um, sales we've mm. seen in the last like three to four years. So we're like, oh, man, this, this year's taking off and then mm. pandemic hits. So from the pandemic, we've just been pivoting, you know, trying to make it through. And if we can make it to the other side, I think we're going to be okay. But we just got to hold on right now. Absolutely. One of the things I'm struck by in your approach is you use ingredients that some folks might call sustainable, but are really ingredients that were born of necessity for Black folks throughout history, right? Whether it's the catfish or the offal or yams or chitlins. I mean, these are just a few of the ingredients that pop up on your encyclopedia. I mean, that's what I grew up on. We, I, I did not know that I was eating poverty food and survival food, but... The magic was that my grandmother and my mom, they made magic out of, you know, some of the most inexpensive cuts, um, some of the most unappreciated ingredients. And they fed a family and we all smiled and we were happy and we we survived and, you know, we're strong as we can be. I wanted to bring that same aspect to my cooking uh, where I didn't need to like have foie gras on the menu and I, I didn't need, you know, the prime cut of beef, you know, sourced from this mm. place in Japan and put on the Southern menu. Like, I couldn't afford that. That's not what Southern food is about. Southern food is about comfort, making something out of nothing, feeding the family, um, sharing what's in season. Um, and that was my approach. And I was taking these unappreciated and maybe undervalued cuts and making magic out of it. I think that's a true talent of a chef. If you can take pig feet and make it into something that people really want to eat that weren't growing up on those. Chitlins, for instance, pig ears, you know, um, tripes, you know, other, other offcuts that may have been thrown in the trash before are now celebrated. And I'm just doing my part as a chef to celebrate those ingredients and also celebrate the history, even if it's good or bad. And when it comes to sort of the the stories, maybe the common stories that get the headlines when it comes to uh, modern dining, you know, I feel like terms like farm to table are thrown around. And yet, you know, Black folks, Indigenous folks, other marginalized groups have been cooking this way for centuries, right? And, yeah. and often uh, don't get celebrated in the same way as, again, the farm to table, the nose to tail uh, white chefs. Well, I think we were the innovators <laughs> yeah. of that. I tell people now, you know, it's just like people don't realize that Southern food is 
is and was the building blocks of American mm. cuisine. Without Southern food, there was there was a lot of plantation owners and their families that would have starved or, or, you know, had to work a hell of a lot harder than they are working, than they had to work in the past. Like, they learned from these slaves of how to cook some of these ingredients and, and herbs and vegetables that were growing. They learned from the Native Americans, too. Like, we can't disregard the the talent and the knowledge that the Native Americans pass along to the Africans, that the Africans pass along to the white man or the European settlers, whatever we want to call them. That's a passing of knowledge and, and skills that is taken for granted because those were the building blocks of American America and American cuisine. And on the website for June Baby, you have this really incredible encyclopedia yeah. that spans cooking styles, ingredients, history about the African diaspora. Why was it important for you to do that when you launched June Baby? Yeah. So when I when I first was in the brainstorming process and kind of writing a business plan. Um, I decided to take a trip to the South and just kind of get reacquainted. And, you know, when I was on that trip, I went to, oh man, like 20, 20 restaurants, four plantations, two museums. And I decided that I wanted to kind of um, make a blog out of it. I was starting to write, you know, my experience on the trips, the foods that I've eaten, taking pictures. And as I was starting that blog, I realized that a lot of the things that I was writing down and talking about will not be familiar to people who aren't in the South. Mm. And I'm opening a restaurant in the Pacific Northwest. The last thing I want people to do is to come in slightly confused or not understanding. And then, like more importantly, not have an appreciation for um, the restaurant and, and its histories. It's kind of like um, a human relationship that we have. If you don't get to know anyone or a particular person, you're going to have your your own prejudgments of them, right. your own um, discriminatory thought processes going. And so I wanted to avoid that because people do have like the connotation of what the, what Southern ingredients are and what it should be. And um, I wanted to change people's um, definition of what Southern food is. With June Baby, you created a menu that pays tribute to your family, but also the food of the American South and the Black diaspora. And I wonder, how have you approached bringing together ingredients that are local, you know, i.e. of the Northwest, but also ingredients that are essential to Black American Southern cuisine? Yeah, so the, the magic behind me opening June Baby was that I had a lot of people supporting me from my staff. Mm. If I didn't have the farmers that I believed in, I would not have been able to open up June Baby because mm. a lot of Southern food is built on the ingredients and not just like the ideal of a dish. That Yeah, there are certain commercialized dishes, dishes that you can find in any fast food restaurant that are quote unquote comforting and Southern. But when you talk about like a true Southerner, it's built on that grassland behind them that they grow in their wheats and corns and squashes and things of that nature. That was my thought process when I opened up June Baby. It was just like, what farmers can grow what I want? And then I started thinking about Southern ingredients. Mm. Most of my farmers already grew Southern ingredients, even though they weren't grown in the South. Oh, huh. Like what Like what kinds of items in particular? The watermelon, the peaches, the turnips, mm. the collard greens, the mustard greens. All of those ingredients were grown by farmers here in the Pacific Northwest. They weren't necessarily, I mean, they, they weren't necessarily like, heirloom Southern and Southern ingredients, but it just were not grown 2,000 miles away. And so that was the blessing that I didn't have to get all of these ingredients shipped in. Now, there's other things that I can't grow that my farmers will not grow and cannot grow just because Mother Nature doesn't allow us to grow it. So like some peas um, or rice and some particular grains might struggle here in the Pacific Northwest, but we have substitutions. We're able to manipulate. And then I also support 
some of the magnificent farmers that are in the South, and we do get some of those ingredients shipped here because it won't be Southern without the rice. It won't be Southern without particular peas. You know, I know it was a few months back that you transformed Solari into a local pickup kitchen. And I'm just wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about the idea for that and how that worked. All of my restaurants are on the same block. They're literally like a minute away from each other. And so the idea of turning all three of my restaurants into a takeout restaurant just didn't make financial sense. And so, you know, I had to think about like, what does the community need right now? Those who can't afford a meal, they they need something comforting, something homey. Um, If you're in the industry, we're definitely definitely focusing on you. But um, if you are in need of a meal, come out to Solari. Um, Then I thought about like the rest of the community. Like, you know, there's going to be just so many people with food insecurities from all the restaurant workers that we laid off that don't have jobs, don't even have an opportunity to think about a job. And then you have, you know, just Washington State in general already face the food insecurity of one in six people face some type of food insecurities. And then you got the children that are in school that, you know, always depended on maybe a little breakfast and definitely in that school lunch. Um, And so I just thought about, like, what can we do to have a direct impact in our community? And so that's when we converted Solari into the community kitchen just to serve our community. And we depended only and heavily on donations from the community to make the program work. And and it wasn't easy. And you got to understand, there was no true revenue coming in. So Mm -hmm. we're doing this only on the support of the community in in the effort to help the community. We created over 26,000 meals at one point. Um, I think we're up to 28,000 now um, since the month of August when we, we did a couple kids programs with No Kid Hungry. Your mom's cooking, your grandmother's cooking, very much influenced you and also influenced the menu at June Baby. I'm just wondering if you could maybe pick one dish and explain its meaning to you personally. Yeah. Oh, man. One dish. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It's probably hard to choose from so many. Totally. You know, I I, I think about like, we we, we call it Mama Jordan's oxtails. You Mm. know, it was a dish that my mom cooked a lot. It was kind of real simple cooking for her. And we have it on the menu now. It's cooked yeah. a slightly different from a chef perspective. But my mom, you know, right before we would go to church, she'll throw in her crock pot some um, oxtails, some carrots, some onions, um, some beef broth or whatever we had in the fridge, some water if it was water, some herbs if we had it. And we walked away. And then when she got back, she added in some potatoes or, or cooked some rice. And we we ate that as a full meal. We had our vegetables all in one. And it was super humbling to me. I didn't realize like oxtails were dirt cheap back in the day. I mean, they probably like 99 cents to 79 cents a pound from the from the meat market, w- which we used to get them. And now, you know, you find oxtails for $7.99 a pound and up to like 11 and $12 a pound for these Wagyu and Kobe beef oxtails that right. now um, chefs around the country are, are parading themselves and priding themselves on about cooking and making beautiful terrines out of and torsions mm. of foie gras with oxtails. And, you know, mm. now that's the cool kid thing. And before, like, that's the food that fed me and allowed us to to, to make it through another day. And it was easy cooking for us, but... You know, that humble ingredient there that is making a name for itself. You know, I want to make sure like my people are getting credit for it. You use that word credit, and that's something that I wanted to ask you about. You know, it, in this year where we've seen this very public and experienced this very public reckoning around racial injustice, just in the culinary world, how has it maybe changed or influenced anything when it comes to the themes you're talking about here, right? The credit for being food innovators, for the role of Black chefs, other chefs of color. Uh, I mean, I don't know. There was a f- slow resurgence of 
voices of color, female voices, and uh, and diversity in the industry. And it was slow. I mean, we, yeah. we yeah. saw little spurts of it. Um, yeah, I won two James Beard Awards, and then we went backwards a little bit. And then 2020 hits, and people are having a reckoning of sorts. Our industry is changing. It has changed. Um, the old guards are going to have to step down. The media is going to have to recognize, if not, we're not going to have an industry anymore. And so now we have a platform. We have something to stand on to voice our opinion, to voice our cuisine and showcase like our talent. And I call like things like this that is happening. It's kind of like flushing the toilet, getting all the crap <laughs> crap down. And, and hopefully we get a new bowl of water that we don't fill up too fast with crap. What can people do to kind of keep up whatever momentum there might be right now when it comes to this awakening so this doesn't become you know another one of those moments where it's almost a passing fad right totally. where where representation and diversity and inclusiveness kind of bubbles up in the media for a hot second and then disappears i think we have to start from the the stream consumer standpoint from the mm. baseline it's just like it's education and appreciation and and having a demand for it mm. if that's not happening then we don't exist in the long run like yeah that can be this new this new thing that we're all about praising African-American cuisine, African-American chefs and female chefs, et cetera. But if our consumers don't stand up and demand that that stays the case, then like it could easily get swept under the rug. Then we got to start thinking about like our gatekeepers. Who are our gatekeepers? Right. If they're still the white man telling us what gets out into the media, then at any point in time, that light switch can go off because if someone cuts a check or someone pushes them in the right direction or a wrong direction, like those doors close in a heartbeat or they're letting in who they want and letting out who they want. So, I mean, we got to diversify, um, you know, who's telling the stories, you know, who's writing those stories, um, giving the black writers the opportunity, giving the black photographers the opportunities, giving the black chefs the opportunities. So there's more of us that can have a voice that can mount together to create a mountain. Um, right now, it's a bunch of little pebbles running around, but we got to get together to, to make it happen. What does the future of the restaurant business look like when it comes to running a responsible business, when it comes to locally sourced food, when it comes to some of the themes around racial equity we're talking about? I mean, how can restaurants survive when it comes to kind of all of these competing factors? I mean, that's a tough one. That, that's That's what I'm trying to dive deeper into to create a better restaurant industry in general. Yeah. I, you know, I think a lot of things that I've implemented in my businesses is the way that I want to go and way, maybe as an example for others, but um, inclusion starts with like hiring, our hiring process. Yeah. Um, who's sitting down in those interviews to help us get diversity and quality training before, like, you know, making sure that people that step in the door to interview, like actually have the right skills. It's hard things to to like put a finger on, but there's just so many changes that have to happen in our industry. It, it's allowing people to have a voice about their food, you know, diversifying, you know, our restaurant scenes, giving money to minorities to be able to open up their businesses. You know, mm. it's just like I would love to like get a bunch of chefs together in restaurant tours because there's just so much, so much crap again in the toilet that we've been dealing with in our restaurant industry, the hospitality industry, that it's heavyweight, you know, it's heavy. 
All right. Well, again, this is Temperature Check from Grist, and I'm your host, Andrew Simon. For the closing segment of each show, we like to do something that's a little whimsical, a little offbeat, or hopefully fun with each guest. And once again, this week, I'm joined with the uh, amazing and talented Eduardo Jordan. He's a James Beard award-winning chef based in Seattle. And we're going to ask him about some fall foods and celebrating the holidays during a global pandemic. Uh, Is that cool, Eduardo? It's holy. All right. What's your top piece of advice for preparing um, a Thanksgiving meal at home? Because, you know, a lot of people, I imagine, are going to be cooking for themselves, right? There's probably going to be a lower number of social gatherings. So I imagine there's going to be a lot more home cooking going on this year for Thanksgiving. First of all... If someone messed up that turkey last year, don't let them get that turkey this year. (laughs) The the, the turkey is the key. Like, you got to cook a perfect turkey. But no, real advice would be spread out that Thanksgiving cooking over a couple days. Like, you don't need to do everything overnight or, or, you know, the day before. You can make that cranberry sauce like three days, four days in advance. You know, you can make that that cornbread stuffing or dressing a couple days in advance. For me, I always cook my turkey overnight. Literally Mm. like 11 p.m. would be a late night. I'll turn on my oven, get my turkey roasting, and then turn it down to like one of the lowest temperatures, like 150 to 200 degrees. Um, And that sounds crazy. But eight hours later, I wake up or even less than that because I don't even get eight hours of sleep technically. (laughs) So by like 5 a.m., I'm waking up and that turkey is absolutely perfect. And I did no no real work in in worrying about it. I didn't have to baste it. I didn't have to do anything. And that's kind of honestly like my secret to turkey. I'm like, I'll take turkey guys. And they think I did a lot of work to it. I'm like, nope, got it brined already. Got it salted and seasoned, stuffed. And then I roast it and slowly cook it overnight. And for anyone who wants to go out and get a turkey, you know, either in the most ethically sourced way or the most responsible way, is there any advice you can give on what people should look for when they're going out and buying a turkey? The biggest thing is look at the wrapping around that turkey. Antibiotic free, Mm. free range, things of that nature is what you want to think about. You don't want to have these commodity turkeys that have been eating, pretty much eating each other because they're on Mm. top of each other. So yeah, you mean you definitely want to think about that. You're going to taste the difference. I grew up on commodity turkey because that's what I could afford. But once I grew older and actually had a palate and had the ability to source and purchase a turkey of quality, I should say, I guess, um, I can compare it. I can see the difference. There is a big flavor difference, especially in the dark meat. It's a beautiful thing. So, and then other than that, like, you know, trusting your butchers. If you have a, a butcher and you can support locally, they're going to lead you in the right direction with, with the turkey, no matter what. Well, and I know you're a humble dude, so I'll say it, but you're also giving away somewhere close to 200 Thanksgiving boxes um, in the Seattle area to people facing food insecurities. Is that right? Yeah, I'll be working, um, working hard to help 200 families here in King County um, that are facing food insecurities. Um, I did this last year just because like Thanksgiving, again, is like the turn of the season. You think about Thanksgiving going into Christmas time, you see the most saddened news, you know, depressions and suicides and things of mm-hmm. that nature. Um, it becomes a dark time because like you need family. You need like these holidays are expensive. You know, you you miss that opportunity to like have that camaraderie and, and rejoicing and just recharging. Yes. And now with this pandemic, you know, it's not making it easier on these families that already face food insecurity. So, you know, I'm just trying to bring a little bit of happy light to some families um, by donating, um, you know, 200 of those boxes to families so that they don't have to stress out over the over the holidays on feeding their family. And it's going to feed six to eight people. So, yeah, I'm happy, happy to do that. And it's kind of my direct impact that I can have on the community. 
Well, thank you for doing that. And uh, I noticed on Instagram, you're rocking um, these bespoke sweatshirts. I think some of them say chitlins and other messages. So I got to find out. I got to ask you when, when we wrap up how to find these dope sweatshirts that you're wearing. Oh, totally, totally. Honestly, that's my brand. I, I created okay. the Chitlin's brand. Oh, I didn't know that. There's a long story behind it, but like, you know, Chitlin's is something that I grew up on. I slightly turned my back to Chitlin's once I got ridiculed in the in the courtyard of school because some kid knew what Chitlin's was. And when I finally found my voice in the culinary world, I embraced Chitlin's and it's been on my menu ever since. Now Chitlin's is is a statement piece on my shirts. It's not it's more than just the food, you know, it's prosperity, it's perseverance, it's survival. And I'm trying to make it more than just like that food statement. Mm. It's actually a movement, a statement. So check out June Baby Seattle and go to the shop area and, and rock some of that chitlins for me. I think that's a perfect way to end it. Eduardo, where can people find you on the internet, on the socials? You know, my restaurants are Solari Restaurant. You can find us on Instagram, Solari Seattle. Um, June Baby Seattle and um, Lucinda Seattle on Instagram and I think Facebook, the same handles. Um, my personal handle is Eduardo Jordan on Instagram. You know, check out our website. We're pretty accessible. We're telling our stories. We're giving our history. Eduardo Jordan, chef, restaurateur, all around amazing person. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Well, thank you so much, Anjali, for stopping by to talk about what we can expect on the climate and climate justice front over the next four years and for sticking around uh, for my conversation with Eduardo Jordan. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, and thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad that we get to talk about both climate and our favorite Thanksgiving foods. And I'm especially grateful that I got to be here despite being in a closet. Oh my gosh. Well, we have to get you out of that closet so you can go back to reporting stories. Once again, that was Gris Environmental Justice Fellow, Angeli Mercado. And Angeli, where can people find your work? They can find my work on Twitter at Angeli Mercado, last name spelled like supermarket in Spanish. Mm -hmm. My Instagram is Angeli underscore Mercado. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time. We love having you here and hopefully you can pop back sometime. Definitely. All right, big thanks to Chef Eduardo Jordan for joining us on today's episode. Uh, make sure to follow him on the socials at Eduardo Jordan. Really look forward to implementing some of his tips into my holiday cooking for sure. Temperature Check is a podcast from Grist, produced in collaboration with Reasonable Volume. It's hosted by me, Andrew Simon. My co-homie today was Grist Environmental Justice Fellow, Angeli Mercado. It's produced by Brianna Flores, with editing by Elise Hugh and Rachel Swaby. Caroline Saunders is Grist's Chief of Staff in this podcast marketing league. Sound engineering by Mark Bush. Grist is a nonprofit reader-supported newsroom covering climate justice and solutions. If you'd like to support what we do, you can rate, subscribe, and tell all your friends to subscribe to Temperature Check. You can also help to sustain our work by going to grist.org slash donate. That's G-R-I-S-T dot org slash donate. Thank you for listening. Until next time. <laughs>